You're listening to Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. From obsessions to possessions, from hexes to hauntings, if it's demonic, I'm on it. I'm Susan Vigilante. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I want to talk about fooling around. No, don't worry, not that kind of fooling around. Today, I want to talk about fooling around with the occult. There are a number of ways a demon can be invited into people's lives. Someone might put a curse on them, for example. Or that person might invite the demon in himself. He might decide, hey, it's a good idea to make a pact with the devil. That should work out really well. Or, and this is a pretty common way to do it, they might get involved with the occult. They might start messing around with uh, seances or Ouija boards. That's how the possession in The Exorcist started. In the years since it was published, William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, has sold over 17 million copies. In 2019, CNBC estimated that the film, with prices adjusted for inflation, has pulled in over $1 billion. The bottom line is a heck of a lot of people have either seen the movie or read the book. I'm guessing that most people who are interested in the subject of demonic possession, and I assume that means anyone listening to this podcast, has probably either read the novel or seen the movie or both. Now I know, I know, it's only a story. It's fiction. But as I've said before, Hollywood gets a lot of the details right when it comes to possession. Not all of them, but a lot of them. When modern exorcists are asked, what's it really like at an exorcism? I will bet you 10 bucks that one of the first things they will say is, well, there aren't any heads spinning around and there's certainly no green pea soup. You might remember that from the movie. The little girl, Reagan, the one who's possessed, pukes up gallons of green pea soup. Uh, That was the best 1970s special effects guys could do to replicate the kind of things possessed people can puke up. And her head also does this 360 spin on her neck, and it looks pretty weird. Uh, It kind of looks like she's got this manic grin, and her head is just turning around, and it's it was probably a better idea to leave it out. doesn't look so good. So we'll have to give Blatty a thumbs down on those two details, but he gets a lot of the others right. In fact, the first couple of chapters of The Exorcist could almost be a textbook on how you can invite a demon into your home. So this, uh, the plot is there's a, there's a woman who's a movie star who's making a movie in Georgetown in D.C. And she lives in a rented house with her daughter, whose name is Reagan, and she's a 13, I think. There's a housekeeping couple, a, a middle-aged man and a woman. And there's a live-in nanny. You remember the Maharishi and his transcendental meditation, right? From what I understand, basically you empty your mind and you let the universe influence you, I guess. It's a new age kind of thing, and it's not the worst possible thing in the world, but it's a bad idea. Because if you empty your mind, you and you, because if you do empty your mind, how do you know who's going to come in there? I'm just saying, this. it's not a huge deal, but it's a, it's a little bit. It's something. Now, after we learn about this, though, that's when the trouble starts. 
suddenly there are scratching noises in the walls and on the, you know, above the ceiling. Uh, the mom thinks they have rats in the attic, and she insists on putting out traps, but they never catch any rats, so there's scratching in the walls and no rats. Then we learn that things start to get moved around. Uh, a favorite dress of the daughter's disappears from her closet. It's later found at the bottom of somebody else's closet. The mom stubs her toe on a dresser that's moved a couple of inches, just a couple of inches, but enough to cause trouble. Then we learn that the daughter has been playing with an old Ouija board. The board actually belongs to her mother, and the mother forgot that she even owned it, but the daughter found it someplace and has been playing with it on her own. And through this Ouija board, she has contacted an entity whom she calls Captain Howdy. Her mother learns about this because her mother says, you're not supposed to play it alone, let's do it together. But Captain Howdy does not reveal himself when the mother is trying to play the Ouija board with the daughter. He only talks to the daughter. Then things get worse. The daughter's whole personality changes. She starts having temper tantrums. She, her grades tank. Uh, she can't eat. She starts swearing like a sailor. In fact, as a, the mother of a friend of ours used to say, she could embarrass the whole United States Navy with her mouth. Plus, somebody's still moving the furniture around, only not by inches this time, by feet and by yards. One night, the mother holds a dinner party. Now, dinner parties in Washington, D.C., I have to say, are a very special breed. They are very, very important. The kind of guests you can score for your dinner party tells the world what your status is. So she plans this party. Get a load of the guest list. Two priests from Georgetown University. An astronaut primo guest on the list. This is, this is really good stuff she's nabbing here. Plus a senator and his wife. Nobody ever bags a senator for dinner. This lady is really rolling now. The last person she invites is this woman who's uh, very cheerful, very Catholic, and a famous psychic. Her name is Mary Jo. The party seems to be going well. Reagan comes into the living room like a polite, well-brought-up little girl to shake hands with her mother's guests and say goodnight. But she doesn't shake hands with the psychic. She will not let the psychic touch her. And the psychic gets interested at that point. She starts studying the girl very carefully. The girl goes up to bed. The party keeps rolling. People are having cocktails. People are singing at the piano. It's going great. And then Reagan comes back to the living room. Only this time she's wearing her nightgown. And she's moving as if she's in some kind of trance. And she moves across the living room and points to the astronaut and says, You're going to die up there. And then she pees on the rug. Well, 13-year-old girl peeing on the rug, you, as you can imagine, it would put a damper on any party. And people start to leave. Uh, the mother's horrified. She's very upset about her daughter. She tries to tell people she's been sick lately. I don't know, I, I don't know how to explain this. I'm so sorry. And she hustles the girl back upstairs to bed. By the time she comes back, almost everyone has left, except the psychic, Mary Jo. And as she's saying goodbye to Mary Jo, the mom kind of breaks down and tells her what's been going on with the daughter, that she's been playing with this Ouija board, and now she's talking to an imaginary friend, that her grades are going south, that she's become basically impossible to live with. The psychic listens to all this very carefully. 
And then finally she asks, does she really have a Ouija board? And when the mother says yes, the psychic says, I would take it away from her. She explains dabbling with that kind of thing can be very dangerous. And this includes fooling around with anything like a Ouija board or seances. Any of that kind of stuff seems to be pointing to the opening of a door of some kind. Now, that's actually a pretty good summary of what can happen when you start dabbling in the, with the occult. You're opening, or you could be opening, a portal for some demon to come into your life. You know, I, I, I do realize that probably most people who are playing with Ouija boards really are just playing. You know, they're just fooling around. You know, it's only for fun. We're just, we're just, we're just fooling around. We're just playing. But here's the thing. Satan does not care if you are just playing around. Satan is the ultimate opportunist. If he sees a way in and he wants to get in, he will take that way in. Your motivations do not matter to him. The case I'm going to talk about today took place in northern Italy in 2000. There's no possession in this case. There's no scratching in the walls. There's no head spins and there's certainly no pea soup. But it all ended in tragedy, one at which I am sure Satan was delighted. One afternoon, three girls, who were ages 16 and 17 at the time, were lingering over a few beers at a small bar in the town of Chiavenna. Chiavenna is a small mountain town of about 7,000 people. It's about two hours from Milan, and it's close to the Swiss border. As you can imagine, there wasn't a heck of a lot to do in Chiavenna, and teenagers were probably likely to get pretty bored there. Well, they decided they had to do something to get some excitement in their lives. They'd been reading in the papers about how more and more people their age were becoming Satanists. Well, they weren't sure what that meant, but whatever it meant, it certainly didn't sound boring. So they decided, let's give the devil a try. They started out small. They started dressing in black, listening to heavy metal music. They clipped stories from papers and magazines about satanic murders and satanic, you know, satanic sacrifices. By the way, of the estimated 650 satanic organizations in Italy, it seems the majority of them are centered in the northern part of the country. And there are quite a few that came out of Milan. In the course of their research, the girls learned that the thing that is most pleasing to Satan is human sacrifice, and they set about choosing a victim. Sister Maria Laura Magnetti was an Italian nun of the Congregation of the Daughters of the Cross. For much of her career, she taught in elementary schools. She worked with children with... Uh, behavioral issues, and intellectual problems. Tough population. Then her order sent her to Chiavenna. There she became the headmistress of a boarding school that her order ran for troubled girls, uh, juvenile delinquent types, kids who had troubles with drugs, alcohol, with the police, another tough population to work with. I think it's fair to say that Sister Maria basically had no life of her own. 
Besides working in the school with the girls, she counseled parents who had kids with drug issues. She counseled parents who had kids in trouble with the police. She taught the catechism to girls in the boarding school. And everyone in the town knew that every day she visited the sick and the elderly in her parish. All the while, incidentally, keeping herself current with her profession, taking additional training, taking refresher courses. She was busy. She worked with prostitutes. She worked with drug addicts. There was nobody she wasn't willing to help. One night, Sister Maria got a phone call from a former pupil of hers in the boarding school. The girl sounded distraught. She told Sister Maria that she had been raped. She said she was now pregnant from the rape. And she was seriously considering getting an abortion. She called again a couple of nights later and sounded even more distraught. She said she'd had it. She had to get out of here, and she had decided to run away from home. She begged Sister Maria to meet her in town and help her figure out what to do next. Well, Sister Maria didn't hesitate. I mean, this was her life's work, after all. That's, this is what she did. She helped young people in crisis. It didn't matter what the crisis was. It didn't matter who the girl was. Sister Maria was up and out the door. Around 9.30 on the night of June 6, 2000, Sister Maria left her convent and made her way to the Piazza del Castello. Her former student was waiting for her there. She said she had a suitcase hidden in a nearby park with the things she would need to start a new life. She wanted to collect it, and she asked the nun to come and help her. And Sister Maria said, well, of course. They set out for the park, but they never got there. Instead, the girl led the nun to a dark, isolated place. Suddenly, two other girls jumped out of the darkness. One of them hit Sister Maria on the head with a rock. Maria staggered. The girls then ordered her to get down on her knees to show her submission to Satan. They started beating her with their fists. They tormented her with curses. And then they took out the knives. The three of them took turns stabbing the nun while she screamed in pain. The nun prayed aloud for the girls, asking God to forgive them and telling them that she forgave them and that she would never do anything to hurt them. After Maria was dead, the girls went home. They all acted as if nothing had happened. They uh, actually told their parents that they'd gone out to dinner at a restaurant that night. Maria's body was discovered the next morning. She had been stabbed 19 times. Later, the killers admitted to police that they had wanted to stab her 18 times. They figured... Each girl would do six stabs, that would make 666, that would be a demonic number, and Satan would be thrilled. But somehow they lost count, and she was stabbed 19 times. Now, since Sister Maria was known for working with prostitutes and drug addicts, at first the police assumed that she had been murdered by someone who lived on the streets. But eventually a witness came forward. He told the police that he had seen one of the girls that night and that he'd even heard a few things she had said into her cell phone while the police went to work. 22 days after the murder, 
the girls were arrested. All three of them confessed to the crime. All three of them were charged with first-degree murder. At first, they told police that they had killed the nun because they were bored. They said, you know, life is just too boring here, and we wanted a little excitement, so, you know, we did it for fun, really. But after spending a few days in jail, they changed their story. Now they were saying they had done it as a sacrifice to Satan. When the police searched the girls' homes, they found diaries filled with satanic images, pictures of heavy metal rock star Marilyn Manson on the walls. Marilyn Manson is the guy who once described himself as a great admirer of Satan. All of them had collections of press clippings about satanic cults. They had planned the murder for months, swearing a blood oath to each other. Well, they, a blood oath. They cut their wrists, they squeezed some blood into a cup, and they all took terms taking a sip of it. But they all swore they'd find the victim together. At first, they planned to kill the parish priest. But he was too fat, one of the girls said later. That's when we thought of the nun. All three were tried in February of 2001. And all three of them were found guilty of first-degree murder. They were given sentences of between seven and eight years, which sounds like a really kind of shamefully light sentence for such a savage murder. But the court had taken their ages into consideration. They, they were still, you know, barely eight. They weren't even 18 yet. They were still like 17 years old. The court concluded that none of the girls had ever been part of any satanic cult. One of the girls had told the prosecutor, well, we wanted to be a satanic cult, but, but we, we didn't really know how to do it, so we, we couldn't get started on that. Investigators, though, were not so sure. In the course of their investigation, police discovered the existence of a satanic subculture among the young people of the town. Not kids who were drug addicts or delinquents, but kids who were from good families, who never missed school and had never been in trouble with the law. Satanism had gone mainstream. This wasn't a fringe group. Not anymore, anyway. For years, the killers remained anonymous because of their ages. In 2020, 20 years after the crime, their names became widely known. There was uh, Milena de Giambattista, Ambra Giannasso, and Veronica Pietrobelli. I, I have to say, I love Italian names. I'm not sure I get them right most of the time, but I really love trying them. They're so pretty. I don't really know how serious the girls were about being Satanists. I don't think anybody but the killers themselves know. But in the end, their intentions didn't matter. Once they got the idea of killing Sister Maria into their heads... There was no stopping them. I believe Satan wouldn't let them stop. The point is, you do not have to be serious about the occult to be affected by it. Satan doesn't care if you're serious about it or not. Satan is an opportunist. If he sees a way into your life, and he decides he wants to get into your life, he just grabs it. Your attitude towards the Ouija board or the tarot cards or the heavy metal album, does not matter to him in the least. On June 6th, 2021, 
Sister Maria was beatified. Pope Francis declared her a martyr killed in, quote, hatred of the faith. In his pronouncement, he said, Today in Chiavenna, in the Diocese of Como, Sister Maria Laura Mainetti of the Daughters of the Cross, who was killed 21 years ago by three girls influenced by a satanic sect, is being beatified. Beatified means you're almost a saint. Uh, it's, the, it's the last step before sainthood. Now she would be known as the Blessed Sister Maria. If she gets, if she gets canonized, she'll become Saint Sister Maria. That hasn't happened yet, though. So now, for now, she's just one step below sainthood. The Pope also said, She who loved young people more than anything, and who loved and forgave those same girls who were prisoners of evil, leaves us her life program to do every little thing with faith, love, and enthusiasm. May the Lord give us all faith, love, and enthusiasm. One of the killers wrote to Sister Maria's congregation from jail. She said in the letter that the memory of Sister Maria forgiving her would stay with her the rest of her life. Quote, I can have of her only a memory of love. And in addition to this, it also allowed me to believe in something that is neither God nor Satan, but which was a simple woman who defeated evil. Now in her I find comfort and the grace to endure everything. I always pray, and I'm sure she will help me become a better person. And I'm sure she will too because that's something saints do. They help us become better people. Even if we're stupid enough to mess around with Ouija boards. Thanks for listening to this episode of Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm Susan Vigilante, and remember, the devil's first trick is to convince you he doesn't exist. <laughs>